Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we're back after a short break. Do you want to yeah. talk at all about it? Yes, because some people have ex- some people have expressed concern. I'm fine. <laughs> what happened was my daughter had an accident. She's fine, too. Well, she's not um, fine. Yeah, but she's you know. not dead. No, she's not. She's okay. She um she got a bad burn and we went to Shriners Hospital in Boston. I can't tell you what a great hospital it is, even though now I sound like an ad. Yeah, I was like gonna say you can be on one of their commercials. She's out. She was there for a week and luckily her father and I have jobs where they're our bosses are supportive of us. Also, I will say that the Shriners of Maine paid for four nights at the Wyndham Hotel, which is right down the street from the hospital. And so now I am joining the Masonic Lodge and I'm <laughs> going to wear, wear Fez one of those and drive around in the little, <laughs> I, I always wanted to drive around in a little go. I don't think they let women do that. I don't do think that. they let women Just join, men. actually. No, they don't. It's um, too bad. It seems to be all old men. I see that. It's all old, old men. Who, but anyway, the she's fine. She is healing. It's very painful. Can we say that she burned her hair off or don't you want to say that? Yeah. She set she, her hair on fire. She was trying to light incense. It was like a one of those jumbo sticks. It was like sticking. So anyways, she burned when she tried to light it. Her hair got on fire. I hesitate to tell the story because people are very judgmental yes. about parents and about why was she doing that? Blah, blah, blah. I was at work. Which is another thing people will judge me for. Well, but um, one of the nurses at the hospital said, she said, you know, most of the people here feel the same way as you do. They feel guilty and they have judged because it's a lot of times it's something like the it's, kid, it's, you know, the kid was doing right. something. She's 11 it's not years. I like she- condone no. her lighting incense, no. but she's allowed to do it when I wasn't there. Right. I mean, when I was there. I was going to say she's 11 years old. It's not like she's a toddler. Mom and dad were there. They were downstairs and dad rushed to the rescue and everything. But it's not like she's some little kid playing with matches. She's 11 years old. We fucking lit incense when we were 11 years old, right? We did all sorts of shit. I know a lot of people. Okay, since our internet isn't good, we're going to get to the story. Becky will do her NNW we had other stuff to talk about, but we can do that next time, right? Yes. I'm interested. Uh, good. Good. I, I'm glad you're interested. That'll make this hour so worthwhile for you then. <laughs> Before we get started, I want to bring up, then dispense with the elephant in the room. Excuse <laughs> me. I'm working on it. <laughs> I was going to say, and I was going to say, not me. Because whenever someone says, let's <laughs> let's talk about the elephant in the room, I always say, what, me? But anyway, this isn't really an elephant in the room because we're willing to talk about it. I, I just like saying elephant in the room so we can joke about it. I totally agree that the media, and by media in almost all cases in this context, we mean the internet, including amateur bloggers and podcasters, cable TV news, and other type shows, pay way too much attention to attractive young white women who are missing than to missing black, indigenous, and Hispanic women. 
But to say if a white woman goes missing, it's all over the media is simply not true. When's the last time you saw an old, unattractive, fat, or meth addict or sex worker missing white woman in the media, right? I'm not saying that to trivialize missing white women's syndrome. The reality is that if the media is going to pay attention to a missing woman, it's going to be a young, attractive white woman. And I totally agree with that. But when researching this case, I saw a media expert on a TV video about it saying that she thought after Gabby Petito and all the talk about missing white woman syndrome, things would change. But she said the Lauren Smith Fields case proves that things haven't changed. And the Lauren Smith Fields case is what I'm talking about today. First of all, anyone who thinks things would change the minute everyone started talking about Black and Indigenous women not getting attention when they disappear is living in a dream world. And we discussed that when you did your NNW, Becky, on the documentary, This Changes Everything. Yes. People acknowledging something like that, generally people who give a shit in the first place, doesn't mean that people who control things and don't give a shit are going to change or were even paying attention when the discussion was going on. And also regarding the Lauren Smith-Fields case, it's not that simple. Racism definitely was a factor in what happened to Lauren, but it's not the media's fault that what happened in her case happened. And you guys know me, I'm the first to criticize the media And there's still plenty of criticism to go around in this case. I'm just saying that if what happened to Lauren Smith Fields happened to a white woman, the police likely would have acted differently, but I'm not sure the media still would have picked it up. Lauren Smith Fields wasn't a missing woman, but remember how when I discussed eraser murderers in episodes 117 and 118, and also some previous episodes, I said a lot of these women are in plain sight, dead, but something was done to disguise the way they died and the police buy into it. In Lauren's case, it didn't take much to convince the police. On a recent pair of episodes on Real Crime Profile on Lauren's case, Laura Richards and Jim Clemente both blamed the media more than the police for lack of attention on crimes against women of color in general, and in Lauren's case specifically, since that's the case they were talking about. I totally disagree with them, particularly in this case, but also in a lot of cases, though not all. Again, I'm not excusing the media by any measure, but there's also a great misconception about how the media gets stories. I may be seeming to put the cart before the horse by talking about this issue before getting to the case, but I want to talk about it now and dispense with it so we can actually talk about Lauren Smith-Fields and what happened to her. I find a lot of discussion of her case is all about missing white woman syndrome and media bashing, which doesn't really move Lauren's story forward that much. Laura Richards on Real Crime Profile mentioned editorial boards at newspapers making decisions about how to cover things. I laughed out loud when she said that. In what universe? I guess this may happen (laughs) at giant (laughs) newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post or at the newspapers in the UK that she's familiar with. But as someone who's worked for seven small and mid-sized daily newspapers and one business publication over the last 40 years, I can tell you that's not what happens. Not back when things were good and staffs were large and actually had the ability to do that, and not now, when they're just scrambling to put out a product with the skeleton staff every day. And by the way, anyone who wants to see how newspapers really make decisions watch season five of The Wire. Well, that was made while things were still Uh robust for papers. The decision-making at the top isn't much different now, just with fewer people, resources, and readers. 
So at most newspapers, no one is making overarching decisions about how things are covered most of the time, unless there's some big Pulitzer level topic they think they can win a prize for that the guys at the top think will get a lot of notice. The way newspapers make news decisions is that the editors sit down once, sometimes twice a day, and different editors who have reporters under them who have gathered news from those reporters discuss what stories the reporters are working on and pitch them for the front page. At a lot of newspapers now, this is two or three editors having this conversation at the most because, again, newspapers have shred staff over the last decade. They then decide what will go on the front page. Generally, the white guy in charge of news has final veto power. And in the newsroom, it's almost always a white guy in charge, even these days. There's an ongoing story, or in rare cases, a trend, that an editor who isn't the top guy thinks is important. He or she may saunter into the top guy's office to discuss it, or sometimes discuss it with an editor in between he or she and the top guy who has some clout. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. It's possible in the past year or so there are more newspapers saying, let's pay as much attention to crimes against women of color as we do those against white women. And the way things tend to go at newspapers, people may agree with that in concept, but then not do it. At my last actual newspaper job around 2014 or 15, I was getting very uncomfortable with the amount of mugshots of black men arrested that we use as opposed to the amount of white men. Using mugshots was totally arbitrary. Mm -hmm. If the police supplied one to us or a reporter asked, it would be provided for the person putting the page together, the paginator. And if he or she had enough space or needed to fill space or whatever, they'd use the mugshot. Police didn't always give them to us. Reporters didn't always ask for them. And it was hit or miss whether they get in the paper. But there just seemed to be an abnormal amount of black guys when we're the whitest state in the nation. And believe you me, the majority of people committing crime in Maine are white. So I tried to get us to have a, a policy where we always asked for a mugshot and then we used it. If we didn't get one, we had to say in the story why there wasn't one. Or if we didn't use it, we had to say why, but we should use every mugshot or conversely, no mugshots. Many of the paginators mm -hmm. didn't like that because it was one more thing for them to have to fit in the paper or make a decision about, or maybe they just didn't like me, who knows. The people above me gave lip service to liking it, but didn't do much to make sure it happened, and I was treated basically like I was being a pain in the ass. They brushed off my complaints when it was ignored. I'm sure when I left in 2016, things went just back to the way they were. And I'm not saying that to once again, bitch and piss and moan about my newspaper career, but to show an example of how issues regarding how newspapers deal with race are dealt with. I don't think that was an atypical example. Things like that happen all the time. No. I, it was a very frustrating 30 plus years. And the TV news is the same way. Yes. And that, my friends, is how things like that happen at newspapers. There has to be a concerted effort on all parts to make it happen. And by newspapers, I mean news organizations in general. And often the people in charge of getting the news out there will give lip service to diversity, but have little patience or understanding for really making it happen in an equitable way. I'm not defending any of this, by the way. It just always makes me laugh when people think that news organizations are sitting around having these big discussions about how they are or aren't going to cover something. 
the space shuttle blowing up, Boston Marathon bombing, insurrection in Washington. Yeah, okay, they'll discuss that. Global pandemic, maybe. We sure didn't have a strategy at the last place I worked. The boss did not want to talk about it. We were just going to wing it. We hmm. winged it for two years or winged it for, I winged hmm. it for a year and a half and then left. How we're covering missing and murdered women of color? Show me a room full of mostly white middle-class men that are discussing making a concerted effort to cover that at their news organization, and I'll walk from here on my bare feet to wherever that newsroom is to buy them lunch. <laughs> and and it, that's just a very long-winded explanation. I just feel like people don't understand how it works when they say the media doesn't do this, the media doesn't do that. That's how the media I'm familiar with works. It's not so much that they're deciding not to do it. It's just nowhere on their radar. And they're they not don't even, care and they yeah, don't have the patience. It's not even a consideration. It's just... Right. It's just not, is a lot of things to do with women are not. But anyway, as far as local crime in general goes, like if something happens in that newspaper's town, don't worry, we're narrowing it down to today's topic. We'll be there any minute. <laughs> um, that Those crimes have to come to the attention of the newspaper in the first place. The digital age has actually made it more difficult for news organizations to get information on local crime out of local police. When I first started working for newspapers in the early 1980s, it was old school. We had a police scanner that was on all the time in the newsroom. If there was an unattended death on the scanner, we'd call the police station later to find out what it was, and someone would likely tell us or have the sergeant in charge or, or even the investigator call us back. If it was a homicide, we'd follow up. I can't remember once in my nearly four decades at newspapers of us covering an unattended death that the police were looking at as natural, accidental, or suicide, no matter what the person's color, unless it was a prominent person whose death in general would be news, or if it was a suicide or death in a public place. The reporter or reporters who covered the cops, from the smallest weekly paper to the big metros in the old days, would go down to the police station every day and look over the police log from that day and the night before and ask about anything interesting. Nowadays, police put those online or email them. Reporters, by doing this, by having that personal connection and by going to crime scenes, would cultivate relationships with police who would then give them tips for stories. Around the early 2000s, this all started changing. Police started putting the information they wanted us to have on a daily blog or Facebook and referred reporters to that, thereby picking and choosing what they'll tell news organizations and not speaking in person. And if they do, they have a designated person who speaks in person who gives the party line. It also put a giant wall up as far as building the relationships where a reporter mm. would get a tip or hear something interesting in the hallway or somebody would whisper something to them as they were leaving the cop shop and the reporter would follow it up. The likelihood now that the police will tell you something if you call and ask for it is about nil. Mm. Reporters, too, I noticed in my last few years in newspapers before leaving in 2016, were less and less inclined to talk to people in person or go places to talk to people, particularly younger reporters who preferred to communicate by email and text. So those relationships where you get information and schmooze with people totally stopped existing for the most part. On top of it, as I already said, staff at news organizations is a fraction of what it used to be, meaning if there's an interesting call on the scanner, the likelihood of sending your reporter out to see what it is is about nil too. If they're even mm. listening to scanners, because with COVID-19, a lot of reporters and editors are still working from home, 
which also means those discussions that people who aren't journalists imagine journalists are having, even if they had been taking place, likely aren't anymore. I'm certainly not making excuses for the media. I'm just explaining that, as usual, people have this fantasy that people at newspapers and other media organizations are, like I said, having these big discussions about how to cover day-to-day stuff they cover. In a lot of cases, they're not. It's just a crapshoot. They throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. I'm also not excusing the lack of attention to Lauren Smithfield's suspicious death, which, as I said, I'm talking about today and we'll get to any second. But I've heard several people (laughs) say it's an example of missing white women syndrome. But actually, it was a TV station that broke the story because the family, her family went to them. And I just can't see how the media, given all what I just told you, would have picked it up as a story any other way. Not that there aren't other examples out there of missing white women's syndrome. I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing that, but this is just not a case of it. It is a case of the police being racist. I also want to point out that the belief that all white women, as I said earlier, are treated differently by the media when they are victims ignores centuries of misogyny that drives how much worse women in our justice system and female victims overall are treated. Not that Black and Indigenous and Hispanic women aren't treated worse. They certainly are. But all white women are not treated great, like I've heard people imply recently. Even Gabby Petito wasn't immune from it. Anyone who's seen the police body cam video of her knows that. Her narcissistic controlling boyfriend got the benefit of the doubt from the cops while she was treated like a bad guy by them. Of course, racism and misogyny are brutal mix for Black women, as we've seen in the Katanji Jackson Brown Supreme Court hearings. My sources for today's story are the New York Times with several stories by Lola Fadula beginning January 27th, episodes 358 and 359 of the podcast Real Crime Profile, which interviewed Darnell Mm. Crosland, the attorney for Lauren Smithfield's family. And I use mostly just what he said in that interview, not information that they had or gave. I also had The Guardian and um, some other newspapers. So here we go. Ready? Yes. Okay. Lauren Quinique Smith-Fields was 23 last December, set to turn 24 on January 22nd, and living in her hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut. She attended Norwalk Community College with the goal of eventually becoming a physical therapist. She was also helping to pay for college with her side business as a stylist who gave beauty and health tips on social media, where she had thousands of followers on Instagram and TikTok. She had graduated from Stamford High School, where she was a track star and was the only girl of her parents' four children. She was close to her family and loved spending time with them. She and her mother would do mommy-daughter days, where they'd do things like get their nails done. Lauren liked acrylic nails with fancy, intricate designs. Her mother, Chantelle Field, said everyone at the nail salon when they went to get their nails done and everywhere else they went to go, as a matter of fact, loved Lauren. She was bubbly and outgoing, a hugger. She was a health nut, too. She worked out regularly at LA Fitness in Stamford, Connecticut. She ate healthy. She did not use drugs. She had big plans for her life, with notes on her mirror to remind her daily of her goals of finishing Mm -hmm. college and becoming a physical therapist. Like most people her age, she found dates on dating apps. In early December, Mm. Lauren met a 37-year-old white man, Matthew LaFountain, on Bumble. Some media aren't using his name since he hasn't been charged with anything, but his name is out there and his lawyer even went on court TV, so we're going to use it. 
And even Lauren Richards on Real Crime Profile, which wasn't naming him because he hasn't been charged, pointed out that not naming someone is problematic because if it turns out he's a predator, it helps for people to know who's being talked about, which I've always said. I agree with that. And I also go with the philosophy that his name is out there, so there's no reason not to use it. He's been protected enough by the cops, as you'll see. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Lauren and LaFountain chatted for a few days, I assume probably by text. Maybe I shouldn't assume that before she invited him to her apartment for a date on December 11th. According to LaFountain, she also asked him for $40 to get her nails done. Oh, as if. Right. But her family said she'd already had her nails done and wouldn't have asked a date for money to do it, especially a guy she was just dating for the first time. My guess is that he said that to the police to make her look prostitute or he was just being racist or misogynist and trying to make her look bad in some other way. Or it's possible he misunderstood something she said. Who knows? It's his story. Earlier the day of the date, Lauren went shopping with one of her brothers. Some of her brother's bags got mixed up with hers, and she had them in her apartment. They made arrangements for him to drop by that night to get his stuff. Now, as I just alluded to, the account of what happened in Lauren's apartment is all from LaFountain, as given to very friendly policemen, friendly to him, I mean. Mm. So it's not a totally reliable account. I'm recounting it here with the warning that this is what he says happened and where there's conflicting info, I'll tell you. LaFountain told police that after he got to Lauren's, they first did some shots of tequila. Lauren went to the bathroom to throw up, and when she came out, she apologized for throwing up. LaFountain told police he thought it was odd, but he didn't feel it was his place to say anything since he didn't know her that well. After she got sick, according to LaFountain, they drank more tequila with mixers, ate, played games, and started to watch a movie. I know I'd be doing that if I'd just thrown up. Sometime after 11, Lauren got a text. It was from her brother, Lakeem, the one who was going to come by and pick up his clothes. When he knocked on the door, she went out of the apartment to meet him. She didn't bring him in to meet LaFountain or even tell her big brother there was a man in the apartment. Lakeem says Lauren gave him his bag of clothes and they chatted. Lakeem said later, I didn't know that anybody was in there. She came out and was out there for like 10, 15 minutes and she walked back into the house. She looked normal. She didn't look sick. She didn't look tired. She didn't look drunk. I'm her second older brother. If I would have seen her drunk, I would have said, what are you doing? Why do you look like that? LaFountain didn't tell police anything about the the clothes. He said all he knew is that Lauren got a text and went outside to meet her brother. And when she came back in, she went into the bathroom for 10 or 15 minutes. The implication was, and I'm not sure, I haven't seen the police report, so I'm not sure how this was worded. But most news organizations report that the implication was that she must have gotten drugs from her brother and went in the Mm. bathroom to use them. But as the family's attorney pointed out on Real Crime Profile and in other places, if LaFountain's story is true and she was sick earlier, maybe she went back in the bathroom to throw up. Exactly. It's something that didn't seem to occur to LaFountain and police. They immediately leached (sighs) onto the drug thing. A little while later, around midnight, according to LaFountain, Lauren fell asleep or passed out, take your pick, on the couch. So like the gentleman he says he was, he carried her to her room. He says he fell asleep beside mm-hmm. Yeah. He says he fell asleep beside her, waking up to use the bathroom at 3 a.m. She was still asleep and snoring, he said. When he woke up again at 6:30, he says she was lying on her right side, blood was coming out of her right nostril onto the bed, and she was not breathing. He called 911. Mm. 
And I want to add something here. There's a, well, a lot of news accounts say blood was coming out of her right nostril. Darnell Crossland, the attorney, said it was actually her left. And I don't know how that's significant, but she was lying on her right side in the blood. But her body had been moved, I guess, as part of the issue. Anyway, according to Carla Ramel, the first officer, police officer on the scene, LaFountain was frantic and also, quote, trembling and visibly shaking. To which Maureen says, yes, if you can see him shaking, he's visibly shaking. (laughs) So you don't have to say visibly, just saying. But since she's a cop, not a mystery fiction writer, I guess I'll give her a pass on that. Anyway, Ramel found Lauren lying on her back on the floor, not breathing, with blood around around her nose, either her right or left nostril. LaFountain said she was on the floor because he took her off the bed to put her on a hard surface to do chest compressions guided by the 911 dispatcher according to the police report that was the chest compressions not necessarily taking her off the bed the blood on the bed sheets was behind her where her body would have been on the bed not in front of where it would have been it was kind of in the middle and it had streaked on the sheets as though she'd been moved according to crosland the family's lawyer Lauren was pronounced dead at 6.49 a.m. by a paramedic who told police she'd been dead for at least an hour. Mm. Lauren's body was taken away. The cops found $1,345 in cash, her passport, and her cell phone, which they took. They took those three things. They talked to LaFountain. He told his story. And by the way, he told police that they didn't have sex and he never took his clothes off. And they sent him on his way. Nice fellow, they thought. By December 13th, Lauren's family was becoming worried. This was two days after her date. Her mother, Chantelle Fields, usually heard from her and hadn't. Lauren was, wasn't even replying to texts. Christmas dinner was supposed to be at Lauren's house that year, and they had plans to make plans and do stuff that day. When Chantelle texted, are you okay? Please let me know and didn't hear back. She and one of her sons went to Lauren's apartment. They found a note on her door that said, if you're looking for Lauren, call this number. It turned out it was from the landlord who also lived in the building. The landlord is the one who broke the news to Chantel Fields that her daughter was dead. He told her Lauren had been found dead and taken away the morning of the day before. He gave Fields the number for a police detective, Kevin Cronin. When Lauren's brother called Cronin, he said she'd been with a guy she'd met on Bumble, but don't worry about him. He's a really nice guy. Cronin didn't have much, yeah. Cronin didn't have much other information about Lauren or what had happened, but told the brother not to jump to conclusions about the date about the guy. Cronin also the cop told, sure didn't. No, they well they well, jumped they to a conclusion that way. he was a nice guy. Yeah. yeah. Cronin also told the family after they asked to meet with him that he'd meet them at the apartment, so they waited for him and waited. After an hour and a half, when he didn't show up, Chantel Fields called him to see where he was. He told her to stop bothering him and hung up on her. Wow. Lauren's family went in and started gathering up Lauren's things and found in her bedroom a big circle of blood on her bedsheet, not where her head would have been, but farther down, a sedative pill on the table next to the bed. It was nothing she had a prescription for. A thing of lubricant and a used condom in the bathroom. I know. They also found an overturned plate of food and several alcohol bottles. Chantel Fields, at the sight of all this stuff, broke down. Rather than picking up the pill, they left it where it was and took a photo, thinking the police would be interested in it as evidence since Lauren didn't take pills, sedatives. They also took photos of the sheet and the condom without moving or touching them. Mm. The family later asked the police to take the items as evidence and begin an investigation into Lauren's death. 
but the police weren't interested. While the family were appalled that they hadn't been contacted by police when Lauren was found dead, and also that the police were not interested in investigating her death and at how they'd been treated afterwards, they knew that being Black, they would get more out of the police if they were polite and didn't make waves. But even that strategy didn't work. When Chantel called Kevin Cronin to find out if any progress had been made a few days later, he told her to stop bothering him and hung up on her again. Yeah, I know. Asshole. I know, I know. The Smithfields family, it turns out, isn't the only one that got that kind of treatment from the Bridgeport Police Department. On December 12th, the same day Lauren was found dead in her apartment, the family of Brenda Lee Rawls started getting nervous because no one could contact her. Brenda, 53, was generally in contact with her family every day. She was a customer service representative, and she loved to laugh and make jokes, her sister Dorothy Washington told the New York Times. Even in bad times, she would make a bad situation into a funny situation. On December 14th, they still hadn't heard from her, so her sisters went to Brenda's apartment to see if she was okay. When they couldn't find her there, they went to a nearby male friend's apartment. He told them he couldn't wake up Brenda Lee on the morning of December 12th after she'd stayed over at his place, and he called 911. They took her away, but he didn't know where. Huh. Her sisters called the police department. Nothing. They called all the hospitals. Nothing. They even called funeral homes. Nothing. Quote, we had to do our own investigation, Washington said. Finally, that afternoon, after calling around all day, they tracked her body down at the medical examiner's office. Yes, she was dead. Someone there told them she'd been pronounced dead two days before. There were no physical signs of trauma or foul play, and it's not clear how she died, and police felt no inclination to investigate. When Washington got the phone number, by the way, she is Black, too, just like Mm -hmm. Lauren Smithfields, if you were wondering. When Washington, her sister, got the phone number of the investigating detective on December 17th, That was four days after finding out she was dead. After getting the runaround from the police department, she called him five or six times, leaving a message every time, and he never responded. That detective was Angel Lanos, by the way. Lanos was Detective Kevin Cronin's supervisor and also the initial detective on the Lawrence uh, Smithfields case. Uh. Maria Pereira, a Bridgeport City Councilor who represents the area the Smithfields live in, said the police behavior was outrageous, pointing out two Black families whose daughter and sisters had died weren't notified. Quote, I don't even know where to begin on how you are not contacting families. You have their wallets, you have their cell phones, unquote. Police finally told Lauren's family she died of a drug overdose and that fentanyl, which we all know is a super powerful and deadly opioid, was found in her system. But Lauren didn't use drugs. And the medical examiner still hadn't officially released a cause of death. Lauren's father, Everett Smith, paid out of pocket for a second autopsy just to get some answers. The Smithfields family also hired Darnell Crosland, the lawyer. This was about a week after Lauren's death. Near the end of December, still with no action from the police, the family was moving Lauren's stuff out of the apartment when the police showed up unannounced finally to get that evidence because the landlord wanted to rent out the apartment. The police told the family members that since they were all walking around the scene, they would have to give DNA samples. Can I point out, or is it me banging the drum, that they never took LaFountain's DNA? They never asked him for a DNA sample, even though a used condom was found in the (laughs) bathroom and he said they didn't have sex and he was the last person to see her alive. But yet they told her family when they were in her apartment moving her stuff out that they would have to give DNA. 
Crossland, the lawyer, told the family not to give DNA. He wondered why the police weren't going after LaFountain's DNA instead. Quote, you don't take DNA from these family members who have been in the apartment a million times. It's going to be there. Their DNA is going to be there. That makes no sense, he said on Real Crime Profile. He added about the police, these people are so incompetent, I don't know what the hell is going on. You'll hear that a social media onslaught is what began to turn the tide and get attention to Lauren's case, and that's true. But the first public acknowledgement that something wasn't right came from the media. On December 22nd, 10 days after Lauren died, Channel 12 in Connecticut did a story. The reporter interviewed Lauren's family where they told of the police in action and how they'd been mistreated by the police. The family also set up a GoFundMe page to raise money for the investigation, to raise money for their own investigation, not to give it to the police, obviously, with a goal of $100,000. As of now, Mm -hmm. it has about $93,000 in it. Brenda Rawls' family also set up a GoFundMe, by the way, with with a goal of $50,000, and she's got about $12,000 in hers. On December 27th, Jared Stokes, with the TikTok handle K3 Ministry Productions, posted a video about Channel 12's coverage, the fact that LaFountain, whose name hadn't yet been made public, the fact that he hadn't been named or investigated, and pointed out that a certain demographic, white women, got more attention than black women when they ended up dead, and also pointing out that a certain demographic, men, weren't above suspicion. He hashtagged Lauren Smith Fields. Pretty soon, Lauren Smithfield's case, along with calling out missing white woman's syndrome, was all over TikTok and other social media. Rapper Cardi B took up the cause, and the hashtags Lauren Smithfields and Justice for Lauren Smithfields began getting major traction. Just after New Year's, after getting pushed from Crosland, the attorney, police grudgingly met with him and the Smithfields family. Instead of meeting in a conference room, they jammed everyone into an interrogation room, the same room Crosland noted he'd been in during interrogations with clients charged with murder. He asked why they weren't in the conference room and the cops said, oh, it's it's occupied. The acting police chief, Rebecca Garcia, was a no show at the Ooh. meeting. By the way, the reason Garcia is acting police chief is because they've been looking for a new chief since 2020 when the then chief Armando Perez was arrested by the FBI then convicted of fraud for rigging a civil service exam that led to his promotion to chief. So you can see what (laughs) the culture is at the Bridgeport PD. The cops in Lauren's case told the family and Crosland that they didn't find anything suspicious at the scene, which makes me wonder, okay, then why did you you take her $1,345 as well as her passport and cell phone, which they still have, all these months later, by the way, they hadn't done anything with the condom, the bloody sheets, the pill and other stuff the family had found at the scene and that the police themselves had finally collected after pressure from the family in Crosland on December 29th. Crosland told CNN, you definitely want to get the sheet, condom, you want to take pictures of the overturned plate. After we forced them to collect it on December 29th, I called the state forensic lab and the woman who answered said the police department had not made a submission. One of the cops also weirdly told Crosland, quote, there was no blunt force trauma. Yeah, okay. Is that the only way people die? You know, I mean, is that the only way people die suspiciously? No shit. Crosland said police told him and the family that they had no reason to doubt LaFountain's narrative, despite the used condom, the bloody sheet, and the pill that Lauren wouldn't have taken. It boggles the mind. It does boggle the mind. 
Croslin believes a more likely scenario, though, than the one LaFountain told, is that LaFountain slipped Lorna Mickey, that's my words, not Croslin's, uh-huh. and she became distressed around 1 a.m. or so and then lay there dying the rest of the night. Croslin said at the meeting between the family and police, police still had little interest in the evidence. And Croslin said as far as the condom and the fact that the police were not not interested in the condom at all, Croslin said, so I don't know how semen got out of his blue jeans and into a condom that ended up in the bathroom, if it wasn't from him. And in case anyone out there is in doubt, maybe guys, I think all we ladies can agree that the likelihood it's someone else's condom is just about nil. Most of us women wouldn't be leaving a nasty used condom around the bathroom, especially if we had a date coming over. No shit. Croslin said that in most cases of an unexplained death, quote, you compare the unknown to the known, unquote. In other words, compare what's in the condom to LaFountain. Quote, all they had to do was take a swab of his DNA and say, sir, you said you never had sex. But on January 21st, Croslin notified the city of the family's intent to sue on a civil rights violation, specifically naming Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gainham, Police Chief Rebecca Garcia, and the two detectives, Lanos and Cronin. Crossland accused police of possibly covering up evidence and failing to properly investigate Lauren's death. He cited the fact the condom, pill, and bloody sheets were not taken as evidence or tested. At some point around this time, Ridgeport Police Department issued this statement to NBC News. And this is the the initial statement, the, the first public statement Ridgeport Police released more than a month after Lauren died. On December 12th, 2021, the Bridgeport Emergency Operations Center received a call for service regarding an untimely death. Upon police arrival, it was found that Ms. Lauren Smith Fields, and for some reason they hyphenate Lauren Smith Fields and spelled her name wrong as well. They spelled Lauren wrong, passed away unexpectedly. (laughs) This incident is currently being investigated by the Bridgeport Police Department's Detective Bureau. The investigation remains open and active. The Detective Bureau is awaiting the final report from the Chief Medical Examiner's Office for cause and manner of death of Ms. Smith Fields. The Bridgeport Police Department offers its sincerest condolences to the family and friends mm-hmm. of Ms. Lawrence Smithfields. We encourage anyone with information regarding this incident to contact either Detective Sergeant Joseph Morales with a phone number there or Bridgeport Police Tips Line. By January 22nd, the next day, Rolling Stone magazine had picked up the story, giving it national attention aside from what was already on Twitter and TikTok. Hmm. On January 23rd, Lauren's birthday, her family and friends marched on Bridgeport City Hall demanding action. The next day, January 24th, nearly six weeks after Lauren's death, after stonewalling requests by Lauren's family, the attorney, and the press, the medical examiner's report was finally released. The medical examiner ruled that Lauren had died of acute intoxication due to the combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydroxazine, and alcohol. Promethazine and hydroxazine are antihistamines, and as we all know, like I said earlier, fentanyl is a very powerful synthetic opioid. The other drugs, the two antihistamines, are ones that are often associated with date rape because they make people drowsy and unfocused. Lawrence, by the way, had none of those drugs in her medicine cabinet, had been prescribed none of those, those drugs, and rarely even took medication, her mother said. And as Croslin pointed out, if you're on a first date with a guy and he's in your house, you don't normally take drugs anyway. Quote, you're not going to put those in your body, unquote. And by the way, Croslin said that the medical examiner's report was just a verbal one. They weren't given a hard copy or an email, anything in written form, just verbal. 
As with most autopsy reports, the Emmys report had the cause of death and manner of death. The cause of death was drugs. And Croslin says, we can't dispute that. We have to take his word for it. The manner of death, which means, you know, was a homicide, suicide, accident, unknown, whatever. The manner was, quote, accidental. Croslin said, Uh. "We, we vehemently reject that. He also tweeted the day he got the medical examiner's report, quote, I've never seen a medical examiner conclude a mixer of drugs as an accident without knowing who provided the drugs or how it was ingested. Lauren didn't use drugs. Well, we all know there are things people do that their family isn't aware of. My guess is if somebody was using opioids, someone in their family would know. Someone in her family would have known. When the medical examiner's report came out, Croslin told CNN, quote, the ME findings doesn't cure any of the Bridgeport Police Department's lack of progress. In fact, it makes it worse. Instead, we are left with more mm-hmm. questions and answers as a result of a botched investigation or lack thereof. He also told CNN, yeah. this family is not paranoid. The reason it feels that way is because as of late, Gabby Petito was missing and the type of manhunt that was out for her killer was insurmountably different than what we see here. He said that since the cause of death is known, LaFountain should be further investigated. Quote, this looks more like manslaughter, if not a murder, he told a TV reporter. It's high time the police start treating this case with the respect that it deserves. Go to this gentleman's home. Check out where this fentanyl came from. Find out who bought the alcohol that they were allegedly drinking. Find out if there's trace evidence of fentanyl or any other drugs on the alcohol or in the alcohol. Chantel Fields, Lauren's mother, pointed out to CNN that Lauren was in college. She had a family and friends that love her. Quote, no one is going to discard Lauren Smith Fields, my daughter, like she's rubbish. Mm. On January 25th, Bridgeport police said her death was now being investigated as a crime and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency was called in to help because fentanyl was involved. But it's odd to me that they still don't seem to be investigating LaFountain, you know, if fentanyl is an investigation. So you wonder what the hell they are investigating. Anyway, getting ahead of myself there. On January 30th, the two initial cops on the case, Cronin and Lanos, and Lanos was also on Brenda Rawls' case, were both put on administrative leave and an internal affairs investigation was launched. I can't help but feel that the amount of pressure and also the intent to file a lawsuit that Croslin had given them a few days before had something to do with that. A couple days before that January 30th announcement, the New York Times had picked up the story. Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam, in a public speech at City Hall that day, expressed his disappointment in the police department's handling of the case. Quote, I want you to know that I am extremely disappointed with the leadership of the Bridgeport Police Department and find actions Mm. taken up to this point unacceptable. He apologized to the family, friends, and all who care about the human decency that should be shown in these situations, in this case by members of the Bridgeport Police Department. I am very sorry. Mm. By now, LaFountain's name was out there. His lawyer, Peter Carianis, said that LaFountain was cooperating with the investigation. News 12 Connecticut reported that LaFountain was not a suspect in Lauren's death. Carianis told a TV reporter, quote, I think it's the media that's made him the main focus of this investigation. (laughs) Damn right it has. (laughs) At least somebody has. He continued, although Bridgeport police did investigate the matter, he did fully cooperate and he's not the main focus of the investigation anymore. 
As we know, the DEA is involved now, and they will help local authorities investigate the matter and get to the bottom of what happened to Lauren. Uh. We will continue to cooperate with authorities to help definitively determine what happened to Lauren on that evening. We want our family to find some peace after this heartbreaking loss. Mm. By now, LaFountain's Facebook and LinkedIn pages were deleted, but media reports said he live, he's from Milford, Connecticut, is a design engineer at a Connecticut-based company, and before that was a senior mechanical engineer for a company that deals with heaters. He looks like a lot of white guys that age, deliberately bald with a beard and glasses. Not, <laughs> not really my type, but some people like that, I guess. <laughs> In early February, a week or so, I shouldn't be making jokes during this story. In early February, a week or I'm so sorry. after... In early February, a week or so after Cronin and Lanos were put on administrative leave, two new detectives assigned to the case introduced themselves to Crossland. But it seemed like the investigation wasn't really going anywhere, from what Crossland could see. The new detectives also contacted Bumble, you know, the dating app that Lauren and LaFountain had met on, which the previous detectives hadn't bothered to do. Crossland said, though, Bumble hadn't contacted him, and he had been waiting for the police to contact Bumble before he did. And he was trying to contact Bumble now and wasn't getting very far. Quote, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that's happening, he said on Real Crime Profile, apparently referring to both Bumble and the police, I think. He said also that after the initial talk with Bumble officials, the police said they didn't have any plans to have another one. They got everything I guess they wanted in that first talk. The new police investigators have shown the same lack of interest in the evidence that the previous ones did, Crossland said. He said the police have, quote, no interest in doing tests on the evidence or even forensic tests on things like Lauren's hair, which would show the extent of drug use. You know, you can tell by hair, you know, he said in mid-February on Real Crime Profile that the evidence found in her apartment, the used condom, the bloody sheet, the pill, hadn't yet made it to the lab for testing as far as he knew. While the police took Lauren's phone and kept it, they never did anything with it. Crossland knows this because he got a call in February from a federal attorney assigned to the case asking for permission from the family to go into the phone and wanting to know what the password was. <laughs> they did no rape kit on Lauren, what in Connecticut is called a SART, sexual assault rape test. They did nothing, Crosland said. Hmm. And remember how Lauren's father, Everett Smith, paid for his own autopsy? The doctor who performed it is affiliated with Stanford Hospital and now won't release his findings to the family, Crosland said. He said he thinks the doctor is spooked, afraid to speak out or get involved because everyone knows each other. Oh, jeez. Croslin says they're trying to find a way to get the results since they paid for it, but they are also looking into having a third one done. Mm-hmm. Everyone is so closely knit that no one wants to speak up, he said on Real Crime Profile. This was in February, but I haven't seen anything online or on Croslin's Twitter feed that says anything has changed. Croslin said he's focusing on LaFountain simply because he's the last person to have seen Lauren alive and he needs to be part of the investigation. Croslin pointed out that the investigation can exclude LaFountain too, but there has to be an investigation to do that. When LaFountain's lawyer, Peter Carianos, was asked on court TV if LaFountain would give a DNA sample if asked, the lawyer said no comment. Croslin points out it would be helpful if LaFountain would just say, I didn't have sex with her. That's not my semen in that condom and give a DNA sample. When LaFountain's lawyer was asked on court TV about the medical examiner's report, he was on right after it came out. He said, we're not surprised. 
To which Croslin says, then how come I'm surprised? How come the mother's surprised? How come there's so many people surprised that you have a cocktail of drugs that'll kill you? He said the toxicology report was more like one from someone who died by suicide. Quote, people don't take that succession of things then wash it down with alcohol is what the experts are saying. You'd be nuts to do that. Even if you're an addict, you don't take all those things at one time and wash it down with alcohol. If he said we're not surprised, it tells me he knew something, unquote. Mm. Also, if she was going to commit suicide, if if they're going to try to argue that, you're not going to do that when you're having a date. I know. You're not going to be like, oh, now my date's here. I'm going to take all this shit. I think they know that the suicide explanation. No, I know that. It is so ridiculous. I'm just saying if if it comes up. That's what I'm saying. The cops, they're just trying to to imply that she was a drug user and say as little as possible. So people, and that's part of the racism there. Well, a dead black woman with drugs in her system, you know. Croslin said the experts say you treat the scene of an unexplained death as a homicide and then dial down as you find out more if it's not one. Indeed. In 1999, under U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, the U.S. Department of Justice drew up a 72-page handbook, since updated, called Death Scene Investigation. The hope was to provide guidelines for jurisdictions across the country to use when investigating unexpected and unattended deaths. In fact, much of the introduction is by law enforcement pathologists and others who put it together. They had hundreds of different professionals giving input for this, pleading with state legislatures to adopt uniform guidelines, to which I say, great idea, but as if. I know. As we know, states want to go their own ways, and I think a lot of jurisdictions are perfectly happy to just do what they want and not have to follow someone else's guidelines. Unlike most countries in the world, in the U.S., states make their own laws, and then cities and municipalities have their own. Federal law, which is broad when it comes to crime, supersedes state law. State law supersedes municipal law, and so on, for the most part, for how crime is dealt with, how it's enforced, how people are sentenced, and everything else, each state is different. There are states you can go commit a murder, and you'll, you'll be fine, and nobody will ever do anything about it. And then there's other ones that you'll be in the electric chair the next day. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> It all adds another layer to how crimes are investigated in the United States. Not only are laws different, but so are procedures. On top of that, add local attitudes and cultures, systemic racism, misogyny, lack of resources, lack of imagination, and more. And you get a huge range of not only how crimes are investigated, but how they're enforced, who is charged, who isn't, and who gives a shit. Janet Reno, in the introduction to the guidebook, says something that maybe Bridgeport should have heeded sometime in the 20 years since she had said it in 1999. And what she said was, few things in our democracy are as important as ensuring that citizens have confidence in their institutions in a crisis. For many individuals, the death of a loved one is just such a crisis. Ensuring that the proper steps and procedures are taken at the scene of that death to reassure the family members that the death was a natural one, a suicide or a homicide, is a key element in maintaining citizen confidence in local officials. How local death investigators do their job is crucial to family members who are mourning a loss today and who may be seeking justice tomorrow. Most of us cringe at the idea of death investigations where important steps were omitted that might have led to arrests and ultimately convictions in those deaths. Justice denied breeds contempt for the institutions created to ensure that justice is done. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, 23 years ago. And look where we are now. Bruce Hanley, a Minnesota defense attorney, wrote in the guide, the guidelines will help to promote consistency, accuracy, predictability, and reliability in death scene investigations. As a criminal defense lawyer, it is a chief concern that a person is not wrongfully accused of having participated in a homicide. Complete, thorough, and careful death scene investigations can lead to greater faith in the system by family and friends of those whose deaths may have been caused by homicide, suicide, accident, or natural causes. Elimination of unanswered questions, confusion, sloppiness, and the lack of attention to detail all can contribute to the genuine acceptance that the cause of death has not been properly determined. Yes. And we've seen that in a lot of stuff. Moreover, in the case of homicide, all can have a strong belief in the accuracy of the identification of the perpetrator. The guidelines will assist the actual investigators in following the proper protocol and consistently obtaining all available evidence to show that the death was the result of either unlawful or lawful activity. And specifically, this is Maureen again, the guide lays out about 50 things an investigative crew should have at the scene then goes through everything they should do at the scene, including the lead investigator introducing himself to other people there. Yes, it's that thorough. It's also sad mm-hmm. that, that somebody would have to be told to introduce themselves to the people at the scene. But then we've seen just from this story that, you know, people have to be told. I won't read you the whole thing. You're welcome. But I will point out a couple <laughs> things. It advises at the scene of any unexplained death, and none of these things were done at the scene of Lauren Smithfield's death. It says to identify visible, physical, and fragile evidence, document and photograph fragile evidence immediately, and collect it if appropriate. Take photographs at the scene. Mm -hmm. Quote, photographs provide detailed corroborating evidence that constructs a system of redundancy should questions arise concerning the report, witness statements, or position of evidence at the scene. Document with photographs and diagrams if the body has been moved. Not only interview witnesses at the scene, but, quote, note discrepancies. Challenge, verify, have them explain. Corroborate that witness statement with any other witnesses. For instance, Mm. like Lauren's brother, Lakeem, you know, who visited that night. Every reasonable effort should be made to notify the next of kin as soon as possible. Notification of next of kin initiates closure for the family, disposition of remains, and facilitates the collection of additional information relative to the case. The investigator shall ensure that the next of kin is notified of the death and that all failed and successful attempts at notifications are documented. Assist the family, including informing them if an autopsy is required, informing them of available support services, informing them of appropriate agencies to contact with questions, informing them when reports will be released, and letting them know when those reports are available. On March 9th, the families of Lauren Smithfields and Brenda Lee Rawls spoke to the Connecticut legislature in favor of a bill that would require police departments to notify families within 24 hours. Kind of like the stuff in that 1999 report. Rawls' sister told the legislature, Brenda was a voter. She was a taxpayer until she died. I want to know what happened to my sister. I want to know why wasn't the scene taped off. I want to know was that male acquaintance questioned. I want to know why my family, none of us were ever spoken to or questioned. Never afforded a family meeting. Why did the police department treat us like trash? And as I mentioned, when discussing eraser murders in episodes 117 and 118, 
You wonder how many suspicious deaths of women are classified as suicide, overdose, or accident when they really weren't. I know. Since Lauren's case made the news, Crossland has been contacted by women who know LaFontaine, who he keeps calling a gentleman. I'm not sure how that figure of speech started when referring to men who clearly aren't gentlemen. My guess is that police started it to be sarcastic and it be just became part of the jargon because now everyone says it and it's I find it annoying when they're referring to criminals. I wish people would just stop and you won't see me doing it. I had to mention it because Crossland keeps calling the guy a gentleman. Crossland got a message from a woman who wanted to talk to him about LaFountain. Crossland was getting ready to go on court TV that night and asked someone there to call the woman. He said he wanted someone else to call her so that people wouldn't accuse him of coaching her or telling her what to say, which makes sense. So someone at court TV called the woman. She turned out to be a 23-year-old black woman. Stunning, Crosland described her. And can we get away from attractiveness being such an important part of the narrative of these stories? The woman said when she saw LaFountain's picture in the media, she had a panic attack. One night, she had been at a gas station, and he pulled in and was staring at her. She pulled out, and he followed her. So she pulled off in a well-lit area and called her mother. He pulled up next to her and, and, quote, for what felt like an eternity, unquote, he stared at her. The woman was on the phone with her mother at that point, and her mother told her to call the police. Before she could, LaFountain, or the man she believed to be LaFountain, pulled away. Crossland said he's investigating that further. Crossland has become the repository of a bizarre stream of information from people from across the country. Families who are suffering with similar stories to tell. On Real Crime Profile, he told of one incident, a doctor at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, a woman who was an immigrant from Haiti, and she's now a doctor at Beth Israel. She was dating an older guy, Russian, who got her to take out a life insurance policy. Uh. One day, she had two surgeries scheduled to perform and didn't show up at the hospital. The hospital couldn't get a hold of her, so they called the police and asked them to go to her apartment to do a wellness check. The police went and couldn't find anything and left. The landlord then checked and found her dead in the closet, wrapped in a blanket. Law enforcement determined it was a suicide. Crosland says, how do you kill yourself and then wrap yourself in a blanket? The woman's boyfriend collected $1 million in insurance from Fidelity Insurance. Her family in Haiti started to file a lawsuit, but their attorney became ill. So now Crosland said he's looking at it too. I looked for information on this online and couldn't find any. He didn't say what town she lived in, whether it was Boston or a suburb or something. So I don't know what police department it was. I'll keep an eye out for the lawsuit and let you guys know. Unless you think that woman's story, Lauren Smithfield's story, Brenda Lee Rawls' stories are anomalies. Here's another one for you from Kansas City from just a month ago. MTO News reported that Asia Maynard, 29, a mother of four, told her sister on Friday, February 18th, that she met a new friend. I'm going on a date, and I'll come by tomorrow to tell you about it. But her sister Tara didn't hear from her the next day, or the next. On Sunday, February 20th, she and her family filed a missing person report. That's when they found out Asia was found dead in her date's apartment the previous morning. An autopsy had already been performed, and the funeral home was coming to pick her up. Quote, We never got a chance to identify her, and they stated that they had already identified her through fingerprints, Tara said. She said the police didn't want to give the family any further information. The family went to the funeral home, where they saw that Asia, quote, had blood in her eyes and her ears, and her clothes were saturated with blood. Now, I don't know, you know, something could have happened at the the autopsy or 
I'm not making excuses for the police. Yeah. Police, but how do you know though when they didn't right. you know, give them a chance? Right. Kansas City police and the medical examiner told the family they do not believe there was foul play. And so they're going to rule that she died of natural causes, even though they don't know what she died of. There was nothing to investigate, Ugh. they told the family. And I feel like if there was some investigation for all that blood, they should have told the family, you know, there's going to be a lot of blood on her, but this is why, you know, whatever. Asia was black, by the way, and her date, Isaiah James Crown, was white. Tara found that out hmm. by investigating where they were on social media the night of their date. Tara said, I feel like they rushed the investigation. So that's another similar story. So you yes. wonder how many stories like this are there out there? It's mind boggling. Mm. You know, it's another case where people say, well, that was just one bad cop. No, it's like a culture because these women don't matter. They were on dates with white guys and we're going to take the white guy's word for whatever happened. And it's just, they're just lazy. And I know. Don't give a they, shit. They're lazy and don't give a shit and don't see black women as human beings. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. Besides the racism surrounding the unexplained deaths of black women, there's another story here. One getting a lot less attention. Bumble released a statement in February saying they'd been waiting for the police to contact them. Yeah, and the police hadn't contacted, didn't contact them until mm-hmm. like February. But Bumble's statement said the physical and emotional safety of our community is of paramount importance. We investigate member complaints and take swift, decisive action against any members who do not meet our standards. We stand mm. ready to provide appropriate assistance and information as requested by law enforcement. Well, that's not exactly true. But this has already been a complicated story. I'll talk a little more about how little online dating services do to protect women, trans people, and others who use them in an update in our next episode, if that's all right with you, Becky. Meanwhile, we'll also see if anything more happens with Lauren Smithfield's case, or Brenda Rawls, or Asia Maynard, or the doctor in Boston. Croslin told CNN a while back, We will not stop until we get justice for Lauren and thousands of black girls that go missing in this country every year. We owe them equal rights and justice regardless of race, and we won't stop fighting until we get it. And that is the story so far of Lauren Smithfields. It's so frustrating and it's so annoying. It is. They're just so that people don't do their fucking jobs for no reason. I don't understand how they can be so dismissive and rude to the family of someone who's been found dead. I don't understand how police cannot notify a family of someone. I don't understand that at all. It's mind boggling. I I don't get that. I just don't understand. I can't understand how you can get away. And then the mayor just, oh, bird disappointed. Well, fire mm. some fucking people. Yeah. They're not yeah. doing their job. I have a feeling that those guys are going to be fired. But if it hadn't been for the pressure of social media and then Rolling Stone yeah. and the New York Times jumping on board, I don't think they would have done anything because the poor family for more than a month was. There have been a few stories over the years where it's ruled suicide when that. Oh, there's many, many, many. There's like somebody recently that was in the trunk of their car. I mean, yeah, that was in Maine. I've got to look that one up. Well, and maybe it was, but I mean, well, I'm, I'm listening to a podcast now. I don't want to go. And the girl was shot in the stomach. And she's left-handed, but was shot in the right side of her stomach with a fairly big 
gun like a magnum and they ruled it suicide so that is addressed in that book eraser murders how a a huge number of women's deaths are like one of the bridgeport cops i read somewhere was like you know do you know how many murders we have to deal with blah 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 it's like well that's no excuse (laughs) you know how long does it take to call somebody's family but anyway, no shit. and also, I don't care how many murders they have to do with the fact that they're picking and choosing which ones to investigate, which crimes to investigate and just letting when it's that arbitrary. Oh, well, he seems like a nice guy. We're just going to let him go. And, you know, who knows who's spunk that is in the condom you know have you ever I don't want to get too personal here, but would you ever leave a used no. condom in your bathroom? Of course not. You know, no. And if especially <laughs> if somebody if a date a real slob if it's there for Gross. longer than like want you it know. for there than 15 seconds and if a new guy's coming over are you i know gonna clean the bathroom you're at least gonna... throw out the condom that's sitting there but anyway so even though it's something that's happening now thought i'd do it and risk the updates although there hasn't been any news in a month mm. on it but oh, so anyway do you have that. an nnw Yes, I do. <laughs> it was from before all this happened. So before Hannah's. Yes, I kind of skimmed over um, shows earlier tonight to make sure that I remembered stuff okay. correctly. So my NNW is on the Netflix series Worst Roommate Ever, oh. which is a really bad title. Because it makes it sound like one of those crappy yeah, oxygen ones. Right, you know, right. That, with reenactments. In fact, like, I was going to watch it and then didn't because And it's of that. not. It's really, it's good. Bad reenactments. I'm taking half a point off. The reenactments are cartoonish, similar to the ones in the tower. I liked them. I didn't really find them distracting, except the reason I'm taking a point off, a half a point off, is because I felt they were too specific. They were driving the story too much. Like if somebody, mm. the way that show is structured, it's a documentary show, is the person would be talking. You know, they don't have a narrator, so that's good. The person who is telling the story is talking. So over their talking, they'll show the cartoon sometimes when they're recounting something, which is fine. That didn't bother me. And actually the cartoons were very well done and looked like the the actual people. So the problem was it would show somebody like the person that was the bad roommate making a face or acting a certain way that they might not necessarily have been acting that he looked really angry when he was when he was walking in the room but then when they show the cartoon the cartoon has this real mad angry look on his face right so that is why i'm taking half a point off i actually like the cartoons i just feel like that they didn't have to tell the story that wasn't being told you know what i mean right they kind of over it so that that right. could be part partially in repetition or beating the drum but i'll take, take it off here but otherwise i actually liked the cartoons they were kind of helpful in telling the story it was better than seeing a stupid reenactment i thought they were well done so and they were kind of funny which maybe they shouldn't be 
I don't know. I didn't mind them, but other than that, um, narrative cliches. No, there is no narrator. Thank goodness. The people are just telling the story, which seems to be the the trend now, which I am all for. And the people do a good job telling the story. Once in a while, you'll hear the producer asking a question or, or a woman asking. Racial gender stereotypes, no. There's only five episodes. There are four different stories. The, sec- the last episode is a two-parter. There's an Asian guy in one. There's Hispanic people. One of them has a supposedly Palestinian guy who he's not, but he is Arabic. No racial gender obtuseness and any of those lack of good visuals i'm taking half a point off and this could be in repetition too but it's just the same thing that i always have it's like the same photographs over and over again so you get tired of them it's like yeah i know what he looks like can you please actually i'm not taking a point off there though i'll, I'll wait i took one off repetition because the visuals they um take place in different areas uh one takes place in, in chile and they do have good visuals of of the area the others in sacramento you know, they do show the area pretty well and everything like that. So I guess I'll take back that. Missing pieces, no. I think they're pretty thorough, the stories. And I'll talk about it at the end. There were two that I knew and the other two I didn't know. Inaccuracy, anachronisms, no. Storytelling, I'm not taking any points off. I thought that the stories were pretty well told. I like the stories that rely heavily on the people who are involved telling them. And they do have cops and reporters and other people involved that weren't the victims or whatever. And I think they do a good job. And I'll talk about that later. So I'm not taking any points off for that freshness. I'm not taking any points off because like I said, even the two stories that I already knew, they have a different perspective. Like one of them is, um, which I'm sure you've heard of, the woman that was, it was in Sacramento. I think it was like, 89 or 90 she ran a boarding house all right i've uh, seen a i've seen one on that yeah the person one of the people they interview is a social worker and they kind of focused on this one guy who was one of the victims because the social worker was pretty close with him she talked about him a lot and she was one of the ones that kind of got the police on this lady because she wasn't getting the answers that she wanted and she knew better like she knew the guy didn't go back to his family or anything because she knew his story. Right. She yeah, she was on, yeah, she was on the dock I saw. So I like that different perspective. And the cops that they talked to, I you know, were likable. Every it was it, it was, was good. good. So I'm saying that uh repetition again, I'm taking half a point off because of the pictures. I they gotta try to find more pictures. Of I know. People. I get no sick kidding. Of the and the, in these social media days, how can you not, you know? Although a lot of these were kind of before right, and then beating true. the drum. No. So it's got nine points. Oh. I highly recommend it. They're all fairly, I think about an hour long. And the last one is a friggin' crazy. It's just crazy. Ooh. I just don't even want to tell you anything about it. Cause you just got to see. Okay. Well, it's I keep just, hoping like I they're looked, all really good though. I looked when I first saw that. Cause I was hoping they'd have Laura Lee Howard. Remember the case I did uh, several episodes ago, the woman in Florida who had that lodger who ended up killing her. Remember her son went oh, down yeah. to visit and yes. I keep looking for something on that, especially cause that guy's still at large. 
You should write to the producers of one. Yeah, I, I don't have the ever. energy to worry about my own shit. But, yeah, so I think the interviews are really good. First of all, I like the ones without the interviewer because as we know like on dateline and stuff sometimes Andrea Canning oh my god yeah whatever questions they're asking them the people are good at telling the story a lot of people are very relatable the victims are very relatable and likable except for the grandma that killed Mm, people because none of the victims are around and that's on Netflix you said it's on Netflix I watched it in like two nights I watched the whole series when I got to the fourth one i'm like oh this is the fourth case and then i got near the end of the episode and i'm like what and then i realized it was it was like a two-part i'm like oh good because i'm like what is happening i don't know how this i'll is have to be watch that and then yeah. was we should probably just go because our internet is so bad you know that uh, any discussion no. but we're back on track Stop. right you're next you're gonna have an episode oh uh, yeah i gotta figure out what i'm gonna yeah you do <laughs> don't you Oh, no, I was going to ask you something, but I saw this discussion on Twitter with podcasters saying that if they do a story, they don't think it's right to do a story without asking the victim's family if it's okay. Yeah, to I do saw a story. that. I disagree. And I feel like I, I think that that's an issue because I feel like if everything's in the public domain, no. I take stuff that's already been reported. How many so podcasts do we it, listen to if, where I don't know. It, the, the kind our type where you're just telling a story and not doing interviews and stuff? The only time I ever felt a little squeamish was when we did Jeanette a car because we're the only ones who told her story. But I talked to her on Twitter about it and she seemed cool with it. And I felt like if people's stories are out there, you should be able to. The part of that thread I saw was somebody saying if a family's, if somebody's family asks you to take down your podcast yes do you yes i saw that and my feeling on that it's a case-by-case thing but if it's in the public i would think so if it's in the public domain and your reporting is accurate i would say no you don't take it down but that's because i'm a journalist if you're doing a story on the guy next door and nobody else has done a story on him and you haven't talked to him it's all situational but I, yeah, my guess is very few podcasters who do the kind of thing we do talk to victims and shit. And whoever's saying that you should, I'd be, I have to see more about it. I almost don't want to because no, it, it messes makes up your story. Things personal and it skews your story because right. we're basically gathering the information right. and we're, making it into a story right. for people. We're not making the story. I'm not going and interviewing people and whatever. Right. You're not doing a story nobody's ever done before. The clo- like the closest we ever came, I think, was probably Jonetta Carr, but yeah. she was had been in the news in Louisville for getting a pardon. And then the Innocence Project had a thing about her. And then I looked into and I found the case files and stuff. So even that wasn't a totally raw story. But I think people have all these kind of self-righteous ideas of how things should be. But I'd be very surprised if the people who are saying that you have to check. If you're a journalist and do a story... If I do a story, like if I was still working at the business publication and did a story on a business, you don't let them read the story before it's published. Yeah. And it's kind of the same idea. 
that you're telling an objective story you're not their exactly. advocate it, it, i guess it depends on how you see yourself you're not their advocate yeah. you're not their pr service that's how um, i feel i i don't feel like i'm i mean obviously we have opinions you're right if you were working for a newspaper and you you know you try to call the people involved but that's not the kind of thing we're doing yeah you know? i know and i'd have yeah. to see more of that to see what kind of podcasts these people do um, I know I didn't, I didn't look into <laughs> just but, reading it. And I was like, it just made me think, you know, if somebody had an us. issue with the accuracy of your podcast, or if you had plagiarized somebody's stuff and they asked mm. you to take it down, then that's a different story, but exactly. we don't do that. Which we talked about other people no. with bigger, I don't more plagiarize, famous. but anyway, we should probably go. Okay. Well, we'll see everybody in a couple weeks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye delay when we talk so it's like i get ready to say something and you say something delay and i'm saying something but anyway should i just go this is so stupid what is stupid internet yeah well dead fucking internet what (laughs) (laughs) what are you looking at i was i was just doodle okay i was taking note are you there yeah the screen just went blank what yeah can you see me no the screen's blank you froze you froze for a while anyway i'll just say your picture froze okay and i couldn't hear you anyway okay it was okay uh your screen just went blank okay yeah i got knocked out again okay what